Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, editor of Espresso, The Economist's daily briefing app, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. Coming up today, how tiny robots could inspect and fix jet engines from the inside. Some are on wheels. Another one is about the size of a letter envelope. It slides inside the engine on a little track. Also on the show, new research from Mexico has revealed how urban birds are choosing to weave cigarette butts into their nests to help keep parasites away. The number of cigarette butts in nests that had living ticks in them was way higher than in the nests that had either dead ticks or no ticks at all. And is it right to relinquish control of our identities to private companies? Could blockchain be the way forward? The problem with having corporate control of identity is not so much that they will necessarily abuse it, but that there isn't a bright line between the jurisdiction of the corporation and the jurisdiction of the state. So let's start with those tiny robots working on jet engines from the inside. Regular maintenance of aircraft engines is a must, but typically requires taking the aircraft out of service. The hunt is therefore on for faster and more efficient ways to keep engines in tip-top condition. I'm joined by The Economist's innovation editor, Paul Markilli, who's been looking into a fascinating new approach. Let's go to the basics. Tell, tell me, in a nutshell, how a jet engine works in the first place. A jet engine works by drawing in air from that big fan you see at the front, which is the big fat section of the engine. Another load of fan blades then compress it down so that it's more dense. It then goes into the combustion chamber. It's ignited with fuel and it blasts out the back. That's what gives the jet engine thrust. But on the way out, some of that gas is sent through another series of blades, which are turbine blades. And those blades are linked to a shaft and they turn the compressor stage and the fan at the front. So you have a complete system there. So a lot of blades packed in a very small space. And some of them have to be made of extremely strong materials that are highly heat resistant and have it within them tiny little channels to keep them cool because in fact the operating temperature right inside that engine often exceeds the melting point of the materials some of the components are made from. So lots and lots of moving parts. I'm, 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 going, to be, I'm going to try not to be worried by the fact that they're operating at, a, at, at above the melting temperature. Um, it's hard to get in and, and look at these things. I mean, how, how is it typically done? They just have to take the whole thing apart. Well, you can do a number of certain inspections when the aircraft is at the at the ramp, for instance. You can look in the front. Obviously, you can see the big front and you can look a little bit in the back. But look deep inside is rather tricky. So, I mean, one way they do it, you can put in a, uh, a camera on a flexible tube and you can poke around and have a bit of a look. But it's, the view is very, very limited. So it's pretty tricky. So the best thing you can do sometimes is start to take the engine apart to look. And that often may well require taking the airplane out of service. 
Right, and you've been looking into a uh, what it sounds like a fascinating just just releasing a, a, an army of tiny robots that do it. Tell me about these things. Well, not necessarily an army. I was at um, General Electric's Global Research Center in New York State, and um, they've developed a number of small, tiny little robots which can actually sneak inside these engines, and they can not only sort of photograph things that are going on in in high detail and then transmit those images back to technicians, but they're also working on having those robots fitted with little tiny arms that can coat the uh, damaged areas uh, with new ceramic, heat-resisting ceramic pastes, and even sort of um, machine out some of the damaged parts by sort of abrading them down. So that allows these engines to be inspected and even in the future to be possibly fixed by small robots. And so when, when, you, say, when you say tiny, we're talking how small here? Well, a few centimetres. Um, some are on wheels. Another one is about the size of a letter envelope, and it's as thin as a letter envelope. It slides inside the engine on a little track weaving between. And what it does is once it's between a couple of blades, it expands, and then you can rotate by hand the blade ring of blades around. So it takes a ride around the engine, photographing things as it goes, and then you can whip it out without pulling on the cord. And some of them you say can actually carry out these repairs. We're, we're talking about a scenario perhaps where the, these inspections and repairs happen while the plane is waiting at the gate? Potentially, that could be possible. Initially, by the end of this year, they'll be using some of the little robots to check and photograph inside. And then they need to fully develop the repair techniques. But, it, but what the one I saw carried a, a little cartridge of ceramic paste, which it can inject on where some of the heat-resistant material has been burnt away or cracked off and cover that over and wipe it clean and then move on to the next bit. So it may not be a forever repair, but it will extend the amount of time the engine can run between full rebuilds. And these engines, jet engines today, are amazingly reliable. How long do you think until we're seeing this in the, in the industry more widely, until this is sort of the, the industry standard for those kinds of low-level repairs and inspections? All the makers of jet engines are keen on speeding up the maintenance and repair of jet engines. So they, they already have some sort of little robotic systems and various other techniques they're trying. This one by GE, I mean, obviously, we're going to be looking at it and we'll still, it may start to do inspections, as I said, before the end of the year, if it works. And I'm sure, you know, it will be uh, universally used and we'll see um, people coming up with little robots and popping them in the engine while you sit there munching on our sandwiches waiting aboard the aeroplane just to check that, um, you know, everything's working fine. I suppose as this kind of technology progresses, we'll end up in this sort of fantastic voyage scenario where they can, you know, send in little robots to fix us from the inside too. They need to be a lot smaller, but uh, it's that same kind of idea. One step at a time. Paul, thanks very much. Pleasure. You're listening to the Economist Science and Technology podcast, Babbage. Next up, birds build nests from the materials that they find in the environment. For those that live far from humans, that's mostly twigs and leaves. Among city-dwelling birds, however, the list of materials grows more eclectic. Plastic bags, paper, aluminium foil, just about anything. Now a new study led by the National Autonomous University of Mexico has revealed that cigarette butts are specifically being woven into nests to keep parasites away. I'm joined by our science correspondent, Matt Kaplan. Hiya, Matt. Hiya, Jason. How's it going? Well, good. You're going you're to help me understand uh, why it is they're doing this. But first of all, what, what's, what's new here? This is the very same team that found that nests with butts in had, uh, had fewer parasites a few years ago, right? 
Yeah, back in 2012, this is the group that identified that birds' nests in cities that had cigarette butts in them tended to have lower parasite loads. And to a certain degree, that made perfect sense because we manufacture cigarettes from nicotine. Nicotine is a natural insecticide, and bugs really don't like this stuff. So if you're sticking the butts into your nest, then things like blood-sucking arthropods, things like, like ticks and such that love to drain the blood out of nestlings, don't like to go into the nest nearly as often. But I guess it wasn't clear whether the, the birds knew the, the, the benefits of, of the butts. Yeah, we had no idea if the birds were actually aware of the effect that the cigarette butts had on their nest ecology or whether it was just dumb luck that they were weaving these thing, things in and therefore gaining a benefit. This new research sought to tease out that question and found that, in fact, the birds do know. So how do these researchers go about finding out? The birds that these folks worked with were on the campus in Mexico, and the researchers collected the linings from, it was like 30-odd bird nests, and then they replaced the linings with a little bit of felt and a, a, some plants from the local area that the birds typically used. And then some of the nests, the poor birds, had ticks added to them, like 70 ticks. In some cases, those 70 ticks were alive. In some cases, they were dead. In some cases, the birds were lucky and they just were given a new nest with no ticks at all, just as a control. And then the researchers monitored what the nests looked like after the nestlings in these nests had fledged and the parents had gone away. And they found that the, the number of cigarette butts in nests that had living ticks in them was way higher than in the nests that had either dead ticks or no ticks at all, which tells you the birds know. I mean, it strongly suggests anyway that the birds know that when you've got live ticks, uh, cigarette butts make a difference. And so it's not a matter of uh, sort of a preventive measure. This is kind of an active one. They see that they have this problem. They know how to solve this problem with, with the butts they can easily find. Yeah, it suggests a certain level of street smarts in, in these urban birds that when they've got a lot of blood-sucking ticks that are draining the, the life fluids out of their nestlings, they can go and find a cigarette butt, stick it in their nest, and that may do a good job of keeping the ticks at bay. Intriguingly, what the researchers also found was if there were a number of cigarette butts in the nest lining, initially before the experiment, i.e. the birds had been using them before, if the birds were then exposed to live ticks, they were more likely to use a greater number of cigarette butts than if they did not have many cigarette butts in their initial lining, suggesting that if they're in the habit of using them, they are more likely to wield them aggressively when faced with parasites. One final question before I let you go. Uh, there, you know, there's this uh, sort of wide perception that messing with nests messes with the birds themselves and their behavior. Is there no issue here with sort of, of interrupting their own data stream by kind of messing with their subjects? That's a great question. This is part of the reason the researchers were working with the birds on the campus. They've worked with these populations many times before, and they knew from experience that the time to get in there and meddle with the lining of a nest so that you don't cause the birds to abandon it is just after the nestlings have hatched. Because if you meddle with the nest while there are still eggs, it's more likely that the birds will encounter a nest parasite that's laid, you know, like a cuckoo, laying its egg in the nest and trying to take advantage. But as soon as the eggs hatch, the birds are much less likely to surrender the nest and, and just fly off and abandon everything. And so they chose a very specific time that they knew from experience was not going to disrupt the, the birds very much. So happily, no harms or, or, or fledglings were harmed in the making of this experiment. Matt, Makes thank you fun. very much. My pleasure, Jason. 
If you've got any thoughts on microbots fixing aircraft or better uses for cigarette butts, do put them in an email to us. Send it to radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And finally, web-based applications are increasingly woven into the infrastructure of modern life, and the data they collect and store are integral to our social and even legal identities. But is it right to relinquish the control of our identities to private companies, and is there a way to take back control? Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, has been speaking to Natalie Smolensky, an anthropologist who works at the blockchain technology startup Learning Machine. She thinks blockchain could be the key. He began by asking, just what is the problem? Centralized ownership of identity. Traditionally, the ownership of identity, uh, legal ownership of identity, has been the province of the state. With the advent of the Internet, we've seen that identity ownership practice shift increasingly to corporations, uh, which are accountable to their constituents in different ways. So unlike the state, they don't have citizens. They have users. Uh, Some of those users are customers. And yet these individuals rely on the infrastructures they provide in much the same way that the citizenry relies on electricity, roads, and other utilities. This sounds great. So if I can't trust Germany because it's 1939, I can trust IBM. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) Okay. So so I I am sort of goading you because we do know that IBM was complicit with the Third Reich. But the question today is it seems like Facebook and Google are a little bit more – warm, fuzzy versions of the state by issuing ID to us so that we can navigate the internet. It seems like this might be a benefit. This might be useful to us. What's wrong with just having the private sector control identity? The problem with having corporate control of identity is not so much that they will necessarily abuse it, but that there isn't a bright line between the jurisdiction of the corporation and the jurisdiction of the state. So what we've seen in the United States, for example, is the demand on the part of the NSA and other uh, government institutions for technology companies as a prerequisite to legal functioning, turn over user records to the state so that surveillance has become a kind of default. This has been referred to as surveillance capitalism, which points to the indeterminate legal ramifications of the structures that we live under today. So what you're saying is that I can't trust the government as the steward of my identity because I'm giving up who I am to this third party, this this institution beyond me. And I can't trust the private sector to do this because they have some of the same vulnerabilities as a centralized organization. That is, they're conferred with their legitimacy from the state, so I'm still stuck to the state. What is the solution? Identity needs to be user-owned or individual-owned. Within the digital space over the past 20 years, there's been a conversation developing around what is now referred to as self-sovereign identity. What this means is that individuals presuppositionally have administrative control over how they present and express themselves in digital space. This is a form of political personhood, political subjectivity. So there's a difference between identity and self-sovereign identity. Things can have uh, a digital identity. uh, Addresses can have a digital identity. But from a political standpoint, it's very important that individuals have self-sovereign identity. So the solution is technology. Tell me. 
So the digital space is right now at the forefront of experimentations with new forms of citizenship, political personhood, and ways of being social. Over the past uh, 10 years, we've had a social media revolution, which has connected the world in unprecedented ways. It's underpinned political movements like the Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street. This is happening as well with regards to decentralization and new forms of P2P networking, specifically the blockchain. How does the blockchain solve the problems that you have identified? Well, the blockchain is a distributed ledger that's comprised of nodes all over the world. In the case of public blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum, anyone can host a node. And every node contains an entire record of every transaction that has ever taken place on that blockchain up until the very first one. So if one node goes down, every other node on the chain still carries an entire copy of the chain. It's the most secure way that we have devised for storing data. And because it is decentralized as a structure, there's no one central organization that controls the data that is on the chain. I'm trying to figure out what would this look like in practice if I wanted to have digital self-sovereignty and I wanted to get that via the blockchain. In practice, what would happen is I would have custodianship of my own public and private keys. Those basically serve as addresses on the blockchain. And I would choose as an individual when and how to disclose my data. So for example, if Facebook is making an inquiry and wants to know my email address and my date of birth and a series of other claims about me, I could choose which one of those I want to, in fact, share with this infrastructural provider, and I could revoke their access to that information as I choose. So right now, under centralized identity models, it's the other way around. The platform not only constitutes your identity in digital space, but defines exactly which information you will share with them. And if you don't provide that information in a satisfactory manner, they can eliminate your identity entirely. And that's a problem from a self-sovereignty perspective. I understand that this is a problem, but I wonder if this is not a little bit too complicated for most people to sort of have their own little digital wallet on their computer and mobile phone, that they manage their own identity. We don't even manage our own pensions, and it's our money. That's right. The problem is that actually the current system of centralized identity providers is ultimately unsustainable. Just think about how many accounts you have in digital space, how many usernames and passwords. Most people will never store passwords in a way that is safe simply because we have so many to remember. Every time you set up a centralized identity structure, you basically create a honeypot for attackers and individuals aren't going to be managing that in a way that's secure. So we're already, you know, uh, in a realm of increasing complexity, what digital self-sovereignty provides is actually a massive simplification of that process. I have one wallet or folder or portfolio where I store my private information, and it's only accessible with my permission. Natalie, thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up this week's Economist or find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 